God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it, isn't, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you, and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The word of our Lord. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce is what the word of Jeremiah recommends to those in exile. This Sunday, uh, we start a new sermon series that will take us all the way up to Christ the King Sunday, which is the last Sunday of the church year. Um, I think that's before Thanksgiving this year. And then Advent starts, which renews the cycle of, of worship that we do at, at the Finest Church, where in that situation we place ourselves as expectant Israel um, and, and celebrate Christmas and as, as the joy of that one coming. So if it's your first time here, we, we wait to celebrate Christmas until Christmas, um, as much as I can fight off the music team, at least. Um, uh, they, they push on me. Um, but that's, that's sort of where we find ourselves. And so we just finished uh, Ecclesiastes this summer, um, which called us into this sort of um, honest looking at life. Um, that, that when we try to live by these success scripts or, or try to find our way in the world that, that proves itself to be true, that often that fails. And the author of Ecclesiastes, while I, I tried to continually suggest is a minority report or a um, a counter opinion, a counter witness. He's not always right. Um, that's certainly true. But he raised for us this idea of what does it mean to live then in the world? And, and a lot of times he says, Enjoy, uh, embrace today. 
Um, remember your limits, but, but take uh, joy and not profit from your work, but in your work and in your food and in your drink and in relaxing at the end of a hard day. Um, that was sort of his call. That relates to this, this coming sermon series. And then what we had, and this is the image that we used for the book of Jonah, is when we walked through the book of Jonah, there was a couple things going on. One is the story of Jonah, um, important. Um, but the second is this, this sort of um, deeper level or, or another level in which Jonah is Israel. And Israel, at the time that it's reading the book of Jonah, finds itself in the belly of a beast as well. Israel finds itself surrounded and captive. And so when Jonah, who's being read as Israel, for the Israelites, he's, his name is Dove, he's this one chosen by God, he's, he's this one who goes into the beast himself. And as they are in exile in his prayer, in the beast, he looks towards the temple, and he knows that that is the place of beauty and goodness and truth. He looks to that place where renewal lies, and his prayer rises to that place, and he's vomited up onto dry land, and the poetic phrase that that, uh, Jonah uses right after that beautiful prayer, and then the fish vomited him up. Um, But Jonah existed in exile, and I, I said several times during when we would get to that point during the sermon is, So as Israel existed in exile, so too the church exists in exile. So too the church is always called inside the belly of a beast, which is our culture. And and, and that is not our culture. It is all cultures the church is called to exist in. We have moments where the church has more institutional power, more strength within the government, and different challenges arise with that beast. And then we have moments where we're in the minority, where we're smaller, where we're picked on, where we feel lost, and that too is living in the belly of the beast. But, but because the church awaits an eternal city that is not coming until Christ establishes it on earth, we always are awaiting within the monster in which... Um, Israel finds itself in two. We find ourselves surrounded as well. And so the question, now not from Jonah, Jonah's question um, was a little bit more of um, uh, where is, where is uh, goodness and truth and repentance and how is Israel going to serve in that way? That's a bit of a different question than how do the question that this sermon series is about is how then does the church, learning from Israel previous to it, survive and live in exile? What are the disciplines and practices and ways of thinking about yourself, always as in a minority spot, but certainly today? I think many Christians in the West feel that way, more so in Europe than the U.S., and more so in Portland than in Texas. Um, but, but it seems like that's the place we, we find ourselves, is sort of in that tension of, of whatever cultural and institutional sort of strength we had, it seems to be waning. Um, there's a little bit of, of, yeah, there's a little bit of a political struggle here because we so identify one side with the other and stuff like that. But, but I think we, we misappropriate 
what does good faith look like? What does true faith look like? We, we can focus on those struggles perhaps a little bit too much. But what does it mean then for us to learn from Jeremiah, to learn from the Old Testament? What does it mean to, to sort of find ourselves not in control? Or what does it mean, one of our, one of our symbols here at the Defiance Church is, is order. What does it mean to live our lives in order to God, even in our households? Now, as we talk about exile today, it's easy to think of all the things that plague us in modern society. Um, uh, I read, and I don't know if anybody else has seen these articles, but on the, on the rise of assisted suicide programs, um, which is dark to begin with, but on the rise in which they are being pushed um, perhaps to save money in some other countries or being pushed in ways to people whom aren't ready for that. I mean, there's a hard, hard question. I think the gospel always stands for life in these end-of-life situations or like Terry Scavo, if you remember those moments, hard questions. But that's not, if you're following the news around assisted suicide programs today, what's being debated. How is it when life has lost that much that we can't define what's worth continuing there? What does it mean to be in exile? We look at our confusion about gender and sexuality. We look at the way in which we think consumerism can fulfill all the desires of our hearts. Um, I often talk as, as uh, you know, there's a medical industrial complex. We have a medical industrial complex in this country too that, that medicine will subsist to serve all our needs. And so that it's, it's in this one way that, you know, it'll even give us death, <laughs> starting with that first example, that, that medicine is the solution to all things. Um, that mammon, rules our hearts. And the one that is perhaps hardest is that we find it so hard to find quiet in the world. Your phone is always begging you to pick it up, to check another Instagram or Twitter or news story or something like that. The TV is always asking to be on. Um, all these things uh, constantly are sort of pulling us away from what it might mean to live in exile. They pull us away from confronting reality too, which I think is part of the hardest part. As, as much as I may think my endless learning about the news is confronting reality, it's actually pulling me further and further away from the realities in which I can actually be present and control and witness to life. Uh, Kids, dad's got to step away because the world's falling apart someplace else, thus spiraling my own children into their own world falling apart by my absence during those times. Pray for the shedding, kids. <laughs> um, uh, I hope I'm naming realities that we all feel, um, that it feels like it's hard to do that. The, one of the quotes when we went through the Gospel of John um, uh, was from an author who said, you have to think of yourself heroically all the time to be a decent person today. Um, to, to, to think of yourself in all your situations as if life hinges upon it because we make it so hard to be present in those ways. When I, when I read that, I still try to think of it when it's like, do I go do this or that or how do I spend my time? Like, if I were the hero of the story, what would I do? And it's just a little battle. But that's sort of where this sermon series is going to lie um, and, and sort of 
uh, work about? Uh, what does it mean to be in that spot? Um, I won't read it today. Um, many of you have heard it before, but the, the quote that Alistair McIntyre ends his big book, After Virtue, with in 1978 or 81, before I was born, he ended his book with this quote. He, the book traces emotivism and how he thinks the rural world is going to become ruled by emotives and that there is no agreed-upon resources by which we can say whether certain things are good or true or right. What's amazing about this book is Alistair McIntyre writes it before he's a Christian, and at the moment he's kind of leaving Marxism as well. So it's an interesting book because Alistair McIntyre today is a Christian, and, and, but at this time he's just sort of looking at how virtue is no longer held in common in the world. And he ends with this, this thing, and it's a paragraph he said he had never wished he had written because everybody knows it better than anything else he ever wrote. Um, uh, I've read the other stuff, but, but it's also a great paragraph. I can understand why people know it better then. Um, but he talks about how that at some point during when Rome was being falling apart, that, that people of goodwill who wanted for things to thrive needed to turn away from shoring up the Roman state and instead build communities together where the virtues could thrive again, where the moral life could be sustained through the new dark ages, which he says, which are already upon us. And this time, and I'll just read the last two sentences, this time, however, the barbarians are not waiting beyond the frontiers. They have already been governing us for quite some time. 1981. Barbarians aren't beyond the frontiers, but have been governing us for some time. And it uh, is our lack of consciousness that constitutes part of our predicament. But what he ends with is we are not waiting for Godot, but another doubtlessly very different St. Benedict. If you're familiar with the story of Benedict, he sees Rome in disrepair and flees into a cave and there begins to sow the seeds of a monastic order that sort of will preserve the traditions of the West, preserve the traditions of, of truth and goodness and beauty, so that when the Dark Ages are over, which they do end, humans can flourish again. So one of those challenges, I think, of often um, as we live in this world is what does it mean to turn aside from that? But there's another story this one comes from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. This is the last one before we get into the book of Jeremiah. Um, Bonhoeffer starts this community in Finkenwald, which I guess is in modern-day Poland. Um, and it's if you've read the book Life Together, we did it as a school of defiance here forever ago. Um, but Life Together is the story of this community and its roots and how it sort of existed. Now, what happened to establish this community was um, the confessing church, those who opposed the Nazis, um, realized they needed a place to train the people they wanted to be the future pastors in conflict with the nation. They had two years before they were shut down, and Life Together narrates um, that. But what happens is that is one of his friends comes to visit him, and his friends and people back east, Bonhoeffer came from a respectable upper-class family where you would not expect to become a pastor or even a theologian. So, um, but they, they, they think what he's doing is suspicious of too much spiritualism. This friend he takes out on a rowing trip. 
Charles Marsh, in his biography of Bonhoeffer, describes the scene this way. When the two rowers reached the far shore, Bonhoeffer led uh, his friend up a small hill to a clearing where they could see in the distance a vast field and a runaways of a nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off in landers, and, s and soldiers moved hurriedly in purposeful patterns like so many ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. You have to be stronger than these tormentors you find everywhere, is what Bonhoeffer says to his friend. You have to be stronger than these tormentors you find everywhere. John Tyson, in his book, The Beautiful Resistance, talks about uh, this needs to be stronger than that. For the church, love needs to be stronger than hate. Worship needs to be stronger than idolatry. And so, too, if we are going to exist through our own period in the belly of the beast, it's necessary for us to find ways for this to be stronger than that. And one of the challenges of this is how do we do that as a people? We'll get into that next. The book of Jeremiah, which uh, Kim read for us today, uh, or back going to the psalm um, that uh, Emily read for us today with, that ends with that depressing line about happy is the one who, who destroys infants. Um, that psalm... Uh, which many people know, is that we sat by the, uh, the waters of Babylon and wept. We remembered our home in Zion. For the Israelites and for any people of the Near East, Near East, to lose your land, to lose your temple, to lose your place, was the end of a world. It was the end of a way of life. It was the way, an end of a way of being. It was catastrophic. I, when I try to think of parallels for America, it's, you can rarely even do it. Um, because we have uh, a center that's a political site, but not a religious site. Um, and so if you think, well, DC could maybe stand in for it, that would be the end of our political life, which certainly it is the end of the political life for Israel, but it's the, also the end of their religious life. In many ways, it's the end of their sacrificial life. It's the end of all their events of orientation to the world. We sat down by the waters and wept. And our tormentors said, sing to us the songs of Zion, the joy that was there. But how can we sing songs of the Lord in a foreign land? And then they have this cling to remember remember Jerusalem and to remember that place, to remember the place that properly ordered them. So, too, for the church, as we think of ourselves sometimes in exile, being asked to sing the songs that bring life back to communities, when everything is in disrepair, that temptation stands for us as well. And so, too, we are called to remember that, that heavenly city that we await, to keep that in mind and to never forget that. Because if you forget that hope, if you forget to what we say every, every Sunday is that uh, um, Christ is, uh, come, Christ has died, Christ will come again, that, that Christ has risen, Christ will come again. If you forget that come again, despair is the ultimate reality. 
despair, and escapism. And so what happens, and this is an interesting text to pair, is this letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles. Or God writes to the exiles through Jeremiah, sorry. But, the, but what's interesting is the solution is to build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. We sit by rivers and weep, and the Lord's instruction to us is to make a home. Very counterintuitive. And yet, what Jeremiah calls out to them, which is radical in its time and place, is to embrace where they are in exile. And this calls them to build and to plant gardens and eat what they produce and to marry. Now this, we often don't want to do ourselves. And this, we feel in multiple different ways in America. We, um, my parents are visiting from Sonoma today. They left Illinois. Uh, I left Illinois, so I can't judge them for it. Um, but, but we don't settle down even in our normal lives. There's always some place we think we could have more flourishing. And it is correctly in the mountains in Colorado where that is true, but, um, or Sonoma. But, but my point being is that we don't do well with the tension to settle down and to build homes, to accept our limits, always looking for the next thing, the next greener pasture, the next job we can do, the next promotion we can have. But he calls them to embrace that which they don't want to embrace. But as Kim read on, it also holds out the hope of renewal. They cannot surrender to despair. And so too, that's a challenge today, to not surrender to despair. If you ever hear a Christian say, I don't know how I could bring kids up in this world, you know that they've surrendered to despair. In actual enemy territory in Babylon, which had destroyed all of their holiness, God continues to command them to have children, to have that future promise. This is to say that, that whatever hope might be for you, you can't surrender to despair, in the words of Jeremiah, while you have to build where they are. And even worse, I think, if you're somebody in exile, you're called to seek the peace of the city in which God has sent you. To seek the peace of that place. It's a deep mission in this space. Now, there was a rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, who was famous for several different things, but he gave a, a, a lecture to First Things about being a creative minority in the world. That was his phrase for what this was, is that what happens in the book of Jeremiah, the Jews are called into being a creative minority in the world. If you've been here for a while, I've probably given you a copy of Resident Aliens. If I haven't and you'd like one, I'll give you a copy of Resident Aliens. My preferred phrase for that is Resident Aliens, but, but Sachs calls it being a creative minority in the world. And he calls out the radicalness of it to, to say in this society where land and, and religion are all entwined, for the Jews to continue, how did they do it? And he, he has these three interesting things. One is that they were monotheistic. 
that God could be present everywhere, that their God was real and could be present everywhere, gave them the ability to sort of continue in worship even though their center of worship had disappeared. The second was that God was sovereign. And it was that God was sovereign that that, that enabled them to hear from Jeremiah that God had brought them into the city they didn't want to be in. As much as Christians today, in whatever belly of the beast that we continue to name, find ourselves, God has called us to be here. To plant gardens and to build homes here. We might hope and desire other times that we obviously have wrong judgment on were easier, but but we still might think they were, but God has called us into this place, into this life, into this time. God's sovereignty has you here not by mistake. So that God could be worshipped there, that God had placed them there. And the third thing, which I think is probably the most important that, that Christians are tempted to forget, is that God kept the faith intact. That it is God who is going to return them to Jerusalem. That is God who is the ultimate vindictive judge. It's not their ability to build a new world in which they can go back to Jerusalem. That responsibility lies in the sovereign one who's placed them where they are. Christians today, having a democracy, I think, changes things. Um, But we still, can you think democratically so much that we think that is where things will turn and hinge? When in fact, to really survive exile, you need to see that it is God who restores. And for Christians, properly, um, it's God who, who renews. Um, that, that we await that time when Jesus comes. There's a fulfillment and a fullness that comes. So all this was a long introduction to a short end of the sermon. Um, is that what are we to do? And one of the first things that I, I was thinking of about this is uh, this, this quote from Richard Hayes, the church is a counterculture community of discipleship. In this community, the primary, the, this, in this community is the primary addressee of God's imperatives. This is Richard Hayes in his big book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, defines the church this way. But what he really leans into is the church is a community of discipleship. When we went through the book of Ephesians, one of the challenges that I learned from Philip Turner actually is the question for the church is not how are you doing, The question for the church is, how are we doing? We are so tempted to think individualistically about what is it that we can do, it's what is it can I can do. And so I was talking to David and Kim before the sermon, or if you read the email this week, and David said, it was nice, Kim read the email on the way to church, you you basically admitted you had no idea you you knew what you were doing. Um, I was like, thanks, David, for the concise summary of of the email, which is, uh, there's a lot going on in the sermon series. Um, But one of the things I get asked often as a pastor is, what's your discipleship vision at Defiance Church? How are you discipling people? What is your goal to bring about discipleship? And and I really dislike that language um, because in the modern form, it's broken out into such individualistic patterns. So John Ortberg, who I like, but he'll define discipleship as, what Jesus would do if he were living your life, which is a bit of a beautiful definition. I don't want to undercut that, but then it's what Jesus would do if he were living your life. 
not calling you into a community of witness and goodness and graciousness, not a counterculture community of discipleship. And this is where the struggle is, is God calls out a people. All the commands in the Bible, almost all of them, Ellen Davis from Duke Divinity, because she's Southern, I say that, points this out. Almost all the commands to community, uh, to holiness and transformation, even when they say you, are plural. They're y'all. Um, uh, Davis says that even the New Testament, when it says you, and I had a Bible that actually had an asterisk, and you would go to the bottom and it'd say plural when it translated you. But we don't have a singular plural um, in proper English. Southerners have it. Um, but, uh, but it's this y'all are called to that. And so I often say, what's the vision for discipleship at Defiance Church? I say, it's worship. We come together and we worship. There is nothing else. I have no other program other than worship and getting us together and letting God do what God will do. And in that way, we come towards adoration. We come towards the table. We come towards the beauty in which God has for us. And so we trust church to do the work. It's a common lament of pastors to say, well, you know, we only have them for an hour a week and Fox News has them or CNN has them for 20 hours a week. And I always think, yeah, but we have them for an hour a week with God. We have them for an hour a week with the Spirit. Like, turn off the TV for sure, but um, something happens here that we have to believe in, that we're called to believe in as Christians, that we're formed into a community. What is this way of life that then flows out of here is the next question. I think that's what they mean by discipleship. And so what happened was, is I ended up, and there's a bunch of these back there, with this book, uh, The Domestic Monastery. Um, it's got a nice cover on it, too, of a happy family. Um, just like we all look, getting our kids ready for church. Um, <laughs> uh, the Domestic Monastery. Um, and it's a beautiful book, but what it does is it calls forth homes as that place. So, so one of my challenges with discipleship is it often is like an, uh, adding a new app to your phone. So when churches talk about discipleship, they're like, how is your rhythm for reading scripture going? We have a program for you to sign up for to read scripture. Or, you know, you want to get into fixed hour prayer. We have an app or, or a solution, a, a, a technology and this in the broad sense of, you know, a book is a technology, sorry. Um, but we have a, a way in which you can add this to the home screen of your life. And what I loved about this book is it called us into our homes. And so what, what I hope is, is that as we read this book and, and walk through the sermon series, is that discipleship is this journey to worship from home and journey from worship back to home. And I always have said that the disciplines that we practice here, reading scripture, prayer, um, sharing, um, these type of things are meant to be uh, scaffolding upon which you can build your life outside of church. But I always struggled to articulate what's the name for that. And I think what this book helps name is home, the domestic. Your room, if you don't have a full home, but space in which you can order yourself and find flourishing. Now, now this is the cover of this book. Um, I'm trying to think of where to go. 
this, this is a nice cover. This, these are two, of, there's a whole group of books in this genre, but these are two of my favorite because they both name what's going on here. The left one is uh, uh, The Quotidian Mysteries, Laundry, Liturgy, and Women's Work. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful, I'll quote that book, beautiful, beautiful book that, that dives into sort of what does it mean to be in the domestic. The other one, obviously uh, written by a guy, um, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Um, what I found is there's several, this is a bit of a lot of books in this genre. There's one called The Liturgy of the Ordinary that's good by Tish Warren. There's older, newer books. But what I love about them is they both have this desire of that this is good and true, and this is where we find life in the daily, um, in, in living a quiet life and working in our hands, Paul's command to us. And there's a whole other segments of books that say where that is is where we thrive in exile. Where the household is, is where we reclaim space from that which tries to impinge upon us. These are both true, liturgy, laundry, and wooden work, and um, the household and the war for the cosmos. We're doing domestic monastery. Um, but, but it's this way in which we... Um, are reclaiming something. We're doing something in this space um, that I think is important, both in the small sense that it is good and true and beautiful for right to Christians participate in, but in a second sense in which that this is where God has called us. Build homes and plant gardens because this is what you do when the world is turned against you. Um, so this book won't touch on that as much as perhaps one like War for the Cosmos, but but that's where we are. Um, and so in this book, the quote just for today, um, we're going to do a study on it. That date is in the bulletin on a Wednesday, a school of defiance. Um, what is a monastery? A monastery is not so much a place set apart for monks and nuns as it is a place set apart. As it is a place set apart. To renew a vision for us, we have a place set apart in our worship, in our time together here. To renew a vision for us to then have our homes, our places of being, wherever they are, you start where you are, to then be another place set apart where the virtues and spiritual disciplines and the renewal can come. Prayer isn't another app to put on your phone in your busy life but as a rhythm you can be drawn in and part of your household together as you come back and forth to worship. To have our, our household set apart in that way. One last story and then a short scripture. Um, uh, Emily and David every Sunday is either talking to somebody about the Denver Broncos or the Lord of the Rings. Um, whatever Venn diagram that is, is, David is in the middle of. People who like... Uh, if you, wanted, if you set up, who are people who like the Denver Broncos and Lord of the Rings? It's David, like, uh, the, we got the Cowans back there too, but it is uh, um, uh, the Benda family, which lived through um, uh, the Soviets ruling their country. And, and, and Vaclav Benda was a dissident in that country. He ended up in jail multiple times, tortured this, that, and the other. The mother, uh, Camilla, uh, would raise the kids in their house, um, uh, the story I read, um, a journalist was visiting their house and he looked and he saw all the wires that they had ripped out because their house was continually under surveillance 
Um, they are shocked at, at what we'll do with an Amazon Echo in our houses. The Bendas, the young Bendas are like, they tapped our house. You guys just put it in your house voluntarily, um, which gives you a different perspective on, on what it's like to live through that. But their kids were required to go to the uh, state communist school every day. They had no choice. Their kids every day were being fed the line that, that this is the good and right way to live, that, that this country that dominates us has freed us, that life has always been this way, that this is it. Easy to surrender to despair. The journalist visiting mentioned how the, the home is full of books, and it's like a holy place there. They're, they're Catholic Christians, the Bendas. Um, but the mother, Camilla, um, she would read to the kids two or three hours every day. Every day, I asked, every day, she said, it was part of their intellectual formation or counter-formation. J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings was a cornerstone of the family. I asked Camilla why. Because we knew Mordor, this is the, if you're not a Lord of the Rings person, um, uh, the enemy space was real. We felt that their story, the hobbits and the others resisting Mordor, was our story too. She told me that as a mathematician, she knows that the ideology of society, science is what drives the world today, but Tolkien's dragons are more realistic than a lot of the things we have in this world. To take from this, that our households today, we've got lots of educational choices, we have lots of freedoms, we have this, it is nowhere near what the Bendis face. But why this book, why this time, why is this our discipleship path? Because the household can do counterformation. The household can be where we flourish. God did not make a mistake when he told those in exile, build households and plant gardens. The last thing for today comes from the Sermon on the Mount, that teaching, you are salt, you are light of the world. Jesus proclaims that this is what we are. As the church tries to live in these patterns, defiance church, other churches, all the churches, we will not fail because Christ does not fail us. That's the good news here. There's a challenge in this sermon, in this time, of reorienting our households so that they're witnesses to this reign of God in that way, which is the mission of defiance church, therefore the mission of the household. But Christ is that. So much so that he says that is what we are. And I'm sure I'll come back to it over and over again over the course of these four or five weeks, but in the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. We, as those people, are promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. So as we go forth, we take this renewal, not as the world hinges upon it, but because God is inviting us into it. The world hinges upon God. You are salt. You are light. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Let us pray. God, you have called us into our own time and place. 
we too may feel like we sit by the waters and weep. Because what we may have lost in this time. But that psalm is preserved for us not because of the times of lament, but because it is the place where the church resides. We are awaiting a future Zion, a future heavenly city, a future renewal of all things that comes with your son. In the midst of that, we sit down and we're drawn to sadness. But sadness is not your solution for Israel or for the church. In the midst of this darkness and exile, we are to build houses, 